Welcome to Medicine Redefined, a podcast focusing on helping you reclaim ownership of your health. I'm Dr. Darsha. And I'm Dr. Ultima Shraja. We're your hosts, here to challenge conventional practices and uncover the stories behind pioneers shaping the future of medicine. Our conversations not only focus on the individual level to dissect common practices for health optimization, but also zoom out to enhance systemic change. Join us as we look to break the status quo, move the needle forward, and put the health back in healthcare. Our guest today is Dr. Irene Davis. Dr. Davis is a professor in the School of Physical Therapy and Rehabilitation Science at the University of South Florida. Prior to this, she was the founding director of the Spalding National Running Center in the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Davis received her Bachelor of Science in Exercise Science from the University of Massachusetts and in Physical Therapy from the University of Florida. She earned her Master's in Biomechanics from the University of Virginia and her PhD from Penn State University. She is a Professor Emeritus in Physical Therapy at the University of Delaware, where she served on the faculty for over 20 years. Her research is focused on the relationship between lower extremity structure, mechanics, and injury. Her research also extends to the development of interventions to alter faulty mechanics through gait retraining. Dr. Davis has been studying the use of wearable sensors in both the evaluation and treatment of injured runners. Her interests also include the effect of minimalist footwear on mechanics and injury, and that is what the majority of our conversation today is centered around. Barefoot training has been quite the craze over the past decade and appears to be promising in the right context. I personally was a huge fan, but veered away for a while because of the injuries I was seeing in practice from people improperly incorporating barefoot training into their exercise program. Well, lucky for you, Dr. Davis provides valuable insight on how and why to do that without getting a fast track ticket to one of our clinics. Other things that you'll also learn by the end of this conversation include Dr. Davis's journey into PT and how she developed a passion into minimalist footwear and training. We talk about foot anatomy and the importance of spending time training and addressing the foot core, which is probably not something we spend enough time addressing and maybe just as important as the lumbopelvic core, especially if you're a runner or athlete of any sort. We discuss different foot strike patterns and force distribution. We also cover various foot types and shoe types such as motion control, stability, etc. And then we discuss the role of minimalist footwear training and how it applies to life outside the athletic endeavors while discussing some clinical relevance for my healthcare professionals as well. If all this sounds a little bit intimidating to you, don't worry, because Dr. Davis does an exceptional job breaking down the concepts into simple terms with some visual aids to make them more digestible. And more good news, she has agreed to come back for a part two, so you have that to look forward to as well. Now, without further delay, please enjoy this highly educational discussion with Dr. Irene Davis. Hey everyone, real quick, we are close to rolling out a newsletter containing high yield notes from our guests and tips and tricks from us. We want to put the health back in healthcare and want to help you do the same by giving you the necessary information to live your best lives and provide value to those around you. Make sure to head to medicineredefined.com where you can input your email and stay up to date. All right, thanks. Time for the episode. All right, Dr. Irene Davis, thanks so much for coming on to our podcast. I'm uh, super happy we're making this happen. Thanks. It's great to be here. Looking forward to it. Yeah, absolutely. So what we're going to be talking about, barefoot, minimalist training, shoes, um, footwear, foot anatomy, kinetic chain, just a bunch that we're really going to delve into here. I have been really passionate about this and actually just recently presented my grand rounds um, during my last year of residency here at Penn State. So right now I feel like a kid waking up on Halloween day, getting ready to go out and get all that candy. And I know I'm going to learn so much from you um, here. But I think it's important for the audience to understand how you ended up as, you know, learning and making this your specialty. 
you're a physical therapist by training. And I know our footprints have probably crossed at, at, at some point. You were at Penn State. I think you were also in Hubblestown, which is, you know, where our rehab hospital it is. Um, so tell us a little bit about your journey. What got you interested in physical therapy and specifically um, barefoot minimalist shoes? It's an interesting story. Um, and you know, it's funny, your career is this dynamic entity that you start out in a direction, you never know where you're going to end up. Um, and it's often circuitous and mine was, um, but <clears throat> I started off, um, really at the university of Massachusetts in exercise science. Um, but before that, I really wanted to be an FBI agent. I always love to put this in part of my story because, um, you know, I used to have these dreams about getting caught and escaping and catch, you know, the magic lipstick and Agent 99 and all of that. And I wanted to be an FBI agent. I wrote J. Edgar Hoover a letter and I actually have that letter that he signed in my safe. Um, and he basically said that, you know, at the age I was 15 at the time and I wanted to do a summer internship. And he said, women aren't allowed in the FBI. You could be an administrative assistant. And that just like dashed my hopes. And I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I literally didn't go to college right away. I took a year off. I bought a motorcycle. I drove around the East Coast and rode with a motorcycle gang and had kind of an interesting sort of gap year before Gap was really popular. And then I, went, then I went to the University of Massachusetts, and I was really interested in sort of exercise and the human body. And so exercise science seemed to make sense. But I then really started to have this... <clears throat> desire to do something in health. Um, I had a cousin who had a, um, a, a spinal cord injury, um, C, C5 level. And, uh, you know, I saw him working with a physical therapist and that's really what got me interested. So I did my, my degree down at the University of Florida. It was an accelerated program at the time. So I did a, um, a, 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 another bachelor in 15 months. So my bachelor in exercise science and I did a bachelor's in physical therapy. Um, and then I started practicing as a physical therapist, but I knew, I think, you know, when people, when you know, someone's going to go on to a PhD, there are people who are always questioning and trying to figure things out. And I really loved doing that. It's kind of why I wanted to be an FBI agent. Um, it's kind of how it ties in. So, um, I really thought I need to, I want to go back to school. So I did work for three years in a rehab setting and working with people with spinal cord injuries. And I, I actually loved it. I love that work but I knew I wanted to go on. So I did my master's in biomechanics at UVA. And then I went to Penn State University um, where it was really the pioneer in the area of running mechanics, Dr. Peter Cavanaugh at Penn State. And so um, I went there and you know, he was a biomechanist but didn't have the clinical background. I wanted to sort of marry the clinical with the science. And, and, and I love that space that I've been in my whole career is I, you know, I have one foot in the science and one foot in the clinical. And, it, you know, I, it, it's, it helps me because I can things, things are, I can make things relevant. I can make the research relevant. Um, and that was really important to me. So I started out after I um, did my PhD, um, I, my first job was at the University of Delaware. And interestingly enough, I was actually the person because someone I had worked with that uh, one of the PhD students was into foot orthotics and all of that and got me interested in it. And so I actually started, you know, kind of teaching foot orthotics and, and motion control and cushion shoes. And I was actually the go-to person in the faculty department at the University of Delaware in the PT faculty to, um, 
like make the orthotics, teach it in the classroom. So I come from that, which is very, it's like 180 degrees, right? So how do you get from that to where I am now? Um, and it's really through evolution of thought. And, you know, the message I try to tell people, try to impart to young people is that you need to keep your mind open that you evolve in your relationships, you evolve as a person and you evolve in your science. And you have to sometimes be able to let go of your dogma. And I had some clinical dogma I was hanging on to with you know, the fact that I thought orthotics were really the end all be all for all problems um, to maybe opening my mind up. And, and the way it happened, it wasn't all of a sudden, it happened when I started out looking at um, different foot strike patterns, rear foot strikers versus forefoot strikers, because my advisor, Peter Kavanaugh, had noticed, just noticed, he really was didn't make a big deal of it, that people who land on the ball of their feet tend to have no impact peak. And those are sort of the, you know, the outliers. They're not the norm. I now think it is really what the norm should be. But um, and he just, he just kind of noticed it. So I decided to take that a little farther when I, one of my first studies was to look at differences between rear foot strikers and forefoot strikers. And we found indeed, even when you look at a big, large group of them, it, that's what you see. There's a very big difference in their mechanics and especially during the impact phase, right? Now, at the same time, the very first barefoot running paper came out at about that same time that I was studying that. And they showed that barefoot runners, and the, the author was DeWitt, and he showed that barefoot runners actually land on the ball of their foot. So then I started thinking, okay, barefoot runners run on the ball of their foot. We started out barefoot. Forefoot striking doesn't have an impact. These impacts have been shown by other researchers like Raiden and others that impacts can cause damage to bone. And so I started to put it together and I thought, hmm, you know, maybe, maybe forefoot striking is really more natural than rear foot striking. I started to go down that path. Um, and and that during that period, Chris McDougall, who was living in Pennsylvania, um, in your in the Hummelstown sort of neck of the woods, uh, Lancaster, I think is where he was living. He was a he was a journalist, a freelance journalist for the New York Times. And mm -hmm. he came down to do a story about strike patterns and you know just um, barefoot versus shoes and all of that. And that really kind of um, started a, a very a relationship we still have today. Um, and and basically, he incorporated some of the things that we had done when he came down to the clinic for his article in the book Born to Run. And so, I was talking to him about you know I was running, but I was you know I I, I actually hadn't run. I ran in college when I was at UMass. I hadn't run because I started getting an injury. I don't even remember what it was. I just know that. It hurt when I ran. It didn't hurt when I didn't run. So I thought, okay, running's not for me, right? Mm -hmm, right. So I didn't run for a long time. And I said, you know, I want to try this. Um, so, you know, what should I do? Should I, you know, should I get those funny toe shoes? I mean, how should I do this? And he said, honey, you got to start out barefoot. He said, and I said, but I really don't want to get calluses because my feet, you know, I'm girl and I, 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 I paint my toenails. And he goes, um, the world is your pumice stone. You know, it'll, you, you won't get big calluses and, and you need to feel the ground at least to learn how to do this correctly. So he came and did some barefoot running clinics at the University of Delaware with us. And that's kind of where I started to, to kind of run um, both barefoot and with minimal shoes. And, and it started my, you know, the, the really another phase of my research trying to understand what are the differences 
right? Mm -hmm. um, and what are the differences in injuries? Uh, and, you know, I, I, I guess I'm at the point now in my career where I want to know how do we get this more universal? Like it's a big, you know, it's a big deal because we've got some very powerful shoe companies who have very deep pockets who want to adapt and to the, you know, add, 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 add to the body. So the body has to do less, less, and less in a sense, right? The minute you start adding cushioning, the body doesn't have to cushion, you add support, the body doesn't have to support. Um, and so that's kind of where I am now is I, I'm really trying to um, brainstorm how we get this message more universal. And I'll stop there because I've been talking a lot and I'm sure you have some questions. So no, I mean, that's an awesome story. And I mean, you've had a, a lengthy journey when where you weaved in and out. And I really appreciate kind of what you talked about dogma. And I think for those listening, I think most people will know what orthotics are, but essentially it's an assistive device. And I think a lot of people recognize it as foot inserts, right? So whether it's for quote unquote, low arches versus high arches, we'll get into all of that stuff. I, um, you know, we were going to ask you why you think barefoot running is making kind of a comeback, but you already alluded to that. Um, I suppose this is might be a good place to maybe just talk about the just overarching high level anatomy of the foot, right? I mean, particularly maybe we could start about talking about different types of arches because that's really for most people entry point when they go to a running store and they'll maybe walk on some, uh, you know, treadmill type, which is looking at pressure patterns, quote unquote. And maybe if they're lucky, they'll do like a, a true gait assessment or watch them run or, you know, I'm not really sure what the experiences of those people are selling that whether they're a salesman versus kinesiologist, um, but they might say, okay, motion control versus those things that you kind of talked about. So maybe if you could start there and tell people like what the difference between low arches, high arches is and why that matters. Like why are people recommending you need a more motion control shoe versus a different type of shoe? And why do we care about that? So I'm going to answer your question by saying it doesn't matter. I don't think it matters. Um, I think we do all have a wide, if you look at a population of people, a population, you're going to see a variety of arch heights across that population, just like you're going to have, see a variety of body types and heights and weights and, you know, even anthropometric ratios of femurs to tibia, we're all different. Um, that doesn't mean that someone needs a different kind of shoe. Um, and there was a study that was done uh, by Joe Knappick out of the military. Uh, and this is one that was really, for me, a very landmark study because I used to prescribe this way. And what they did is they took individuals and they looked at their arch height. And those who had high arches that considered stiff feet, right, were put into cushion shoes. Those who had low arches that were sort of pronated, they put them into motion control shoes, right? And then those that were neutral, I think they put them into neutral shoes. And then the other, another, another group, they all got the neutral shoe. Everyone got the neutral shoe and they followed them for injuries. And what they found now, if those shoes matched to the foot type, we're going to, the reason they do that is to try to protect the foot, right? Mm -hmm. Because of its, its uh, inefficiencies or wh whatever. Um, you'd expect that the people who have footwear matched to their foot type would have less injuries, but that's not what happened. There was absolutely no effect. And they did this on um, a number of different groups, like the, a, a, I think an army group, uh, it might've been an air force group. So across different branches of the military, then they put them all together into a huge meta-analysis and they found the same thing. 
So I don't think it matters. I'll say that. Um, I think that uh, we, our bodies have not changed much in the 2 million years that we've been we've been running. Let's just talk about running, right? Because a lot of this relates to running. And then we can talk about minimal footwear in other populations maybe later. We've been running for 2 million years, right? We've only been using motion-controlled cushioned shoes since the 70s. So 50 years, 55 years, that's it. But we've been running for 2 million years. So up until that point, we were in either barefoot for the majority of that time or in very minimal shoes. Plim soles is what they call them. They're rubber soles and canvas tops and, you know, very much like a minimal shoe until the 70s, until 1970 or right around that time. So we have, we are able, we have everything in our feet to be able to, to um, tolerate the loads of walking and running. Um, and so let's just talk about the foot. So the foot is an amazing structure. It has 26 bones, 33 articulations, and those joints have six degrees of freedom. So three angular motions, if you decompose them into the cardinal planes and three linear motion translations, that's a lot of motion there, right? And there are 10 muscles in four layers just underneath the arch itself. So people don't appreciate that. Those muscles are there for a reason. And the reason that they're there is really primarily for stability. They do act like springs. There's been some research that shows that as well. But they help to, as the foot lands and the arch deforms down, which is helps with shock attenuation, they actually help to slow that, that uh, deformation downward and um, slow the velocity. So slow the magnitude and the velocity of that motion, right? Which helps to protect the foot and helps to protect the plantar fascia, for example. Right. So those muscles are really, they're there. They're very important um, for walking and running. And we, we can, we've done it for, for almost 2 million years without any kind of support and cushioning. So we've lulled ourselves into thinking we need it. And I would like to just talk about, because a lot of people don't know this. How did this happen? right? How did this happen in 1970 that we went from these very minimal shoes to shoes that are maximal? Um, and even some of these 4% shoes and all of that, which is another whole category now. Um, and so what happened at that time is that it was during the running boom, right? All of a sudden, the general population wanted to run. Um, and we could go into that, but let's just, we'll accept that this running boon started. Prior to that, it was primarily running clubs, um, collegiate teams, high school teams, and they were pretty trained. They were trained up and they were running in basically, you know, racing flats. I mean, they, they didn't have anything to, you probably could roll those up just like you can roll up a minimal shoe into a ball. And so when that happened, they started out running in the same shoes that everyone else was running in and they got injured. And it's kind of like a no duh, right? Because they didn't have the controller, the cushioning ability to land on one foot with two and a half times their body weight. And so they ended up developing issues that were related to cushioning or, or too much impact, which is why we added cushioning, too much pronation, which is why we added all of the anti-pronation devices. And because they've been walking around in about two inch heels, most people did, now we're into a flat 
and it puts a load on the Achilles. So what they did is they added a lift. So that's where the heel to toe drop came in, right? And so rather than adapt the runner to the sport, they adapted the shoe to the runner. And that was the big mistake. And they continued to do that. And we got more and more cushioning. So now we got the Hoka with this much of a midsole and we have more and more support. You got the Brooks Beast, right? So, you know, we ended up actually because it ended up really digging us into a hole, I think. Um, and I got that information from um, someone who was working with Nike um, when they first started. And he told me that what they did is they actually had, when they started to see the injuries, they called in three uh, really well-known sports podiatrists because they were the ones dealing with these runners. And they're the ones that made these recommendations. And it's not that I think they were, I think this is what they really thought. I think they thought that this is the problem, this is the way to solve it. And they, they, they actually paid them as consultants to, to come in and tell them. So Nike started to adapt the shoes to the, to the runner. So this is, and so this has really caused us a problem. It's just like um, our, you know, we, uh, we want these really comfortable chairs, like chairs, like Barca loungers, right? I mean, they're very comfortable and they let us raise our feet up and they're, you know, super comfortable, but are they good for our backs? Maybe not. So, you know, really what we should be doing is we should be squatting more. That's what we did as, as um, you know, as hunter gatherers. Um, and not sitting. And, you know, we, 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 so we, we're not going to be able to go back to the prehistoric days, right? We, we're not going to go back to caves. We're not going to go back to hunting, hunting and gathering, but we have to do things that allow us to get as close to the way that we're adapted to move so that that mismatch theory of evolution is minimized. And again, to review that mismatch theory, it says that our body, our, our environment is changing faster than our bodies can adapt. And so our bodies are mismatched for the environment and they are. So instead of, you know, um, taking the car everywhere, we need to, we need to interject more walking or we go to the gym. We didn't have to go to the gym as hunter gatherers. We had, our day made, gave us the exercise we needed, but now we have to add that in. Um, and I think minimal shoes is the same thing. It's the same principle. We need to get away from things that are taking the place of the muscles and the beautiful structures of the foot that we have and allow our bodies to, to function the way they were, they were meant to. Yeah. I love that explanation. And the way you think about that, I know elsewhere, you mentioned the importance of active standing. Now you're talking about active sitting. And it's funny because in this world where we're trying to increase comfort, increase conveniences. You know, we're we're here advocating, and not the first time. Of course, that's that's what we're all about. That's why we think we all jive well together, right? As exercise science nerds, I want to come back and talk about loading patterns, particularly. I think you know, I like that you said maybe it doesn't matter, and I I'm in academics, as we were talking about offline, and I think sometimes we and and you also once defined yourself as a clinical biomechanist, which I love, by the way. And yeah. so when you're taking all these biomechanics classes, right, and I'm talking to my trainees about how osteoarthritis predisposes the medial knee joint and this and that. And we're, we're evaluating all these postures. And then how do we, how do we, um, you know, align that thought process with kind of what we're talking about here. But I think maybe let's stay on the striking patterns because you talked about the whole running boom and why this even became an issue and why this became a conversation in the first place. So would you care to just high level give the, uh, the definitions you, you, you talked about rear foot, forefoot, midfoot striking, 
and maybe you know some specific sports where forefoot is going to be obviously more advantageous and really that's the like sprinting things things of that nature and then how those patterns distribute force and load um, on the respective tissues great question um so I'll, let me define what a rear, what the different strike patterns are. So a rear foot strike pattern is one in which the heel hits the ground first. And a forefoot strike pattern is one in which the ball of the foot hits the ground first. And a midfoot strike pattern is one in which they hit the ground together. So that's the way that we classify those three strike patterns. Um, I believe that we were designed, and there's lots of, I, I could really cite a lot of different reasons, rationales, scientific rationales for why we were designed to land on the ball of our foot. Um, and so I think in terms of running, walking is meant to be a heel strike pattern, right? When you walk, if you look at the modeling of walking, it's modeled as an inverted pendulum which is basically um, our center mass goes up and then down as you walk over your step over your foot. Whereas running is, is modeled as a mass spring where this, the center mass actually goes down and then up as you load the foot, your knee flexes, your hip flexes, and you go, the center mass goes down. They're two very different activities. And I don't think that running is just fast walking. Um, when you land on the ball of your foot, you're taking advantage of the beautiful long Achilles that we have. You don't need as long, you don't take as much advantage of that long Achilles when you land on the heel. I mean, there's lots of reasons. If you look at the, um, if you look at the stiffness of the heel pad versus the forefoot pad, the forefoot pad has greater stiffness and is able to attenuate better the loads of, of landing on the ball of the foot. Uh, if you look at, um, there was a study done by Dan Lieberman out of Harvard and he looked at a group of runners from, from the, the area of Kenya, where um, a lot of the elite runners come from. And uh, so basically what he did was he had these runners and he classified them to, as those who um, are always, their foot, footwear patterns, always shod, sometimes shod, sometimes barefoot, sometimes barefoot, always barefoot, right? And then they, they videotaped them running across a field, right? And what they found is that runners who are always shod land on their heels. Runners who are always barefoot land on the ball of their foot. And the more time they spend being more with less shoes, the more tendency they have to be a forefoot striker. So I really think that forefoot striking is our natural running pattern. Um, it, it shortens your stride. You know, people talk about increasing cadence. It automatically increases cadence, brings your foot underneath you more. Um, so there's lots of benefits. It also reduces the load to the knee. So when you talk about the way that the, the lower extremity gets loaded, when you land on your heel, there's a greater load at the knee, less load at the ankle or the calf right? When you land on the ball of your foot, it shifts the load to the calf, but reduces the load at the knee. And when you think about the injuries that runners get, the majority of the most common injury in runners is knee injuries. So, you know, I, I just, again, think that this is really was our natural strike pattern. Now that same study that uh, Lieberman and colleagues did, they also looked at the variability of foot strike in, in 
uh, individuals who are barefoot or individuals who actually run in shoes. And what they found is that when you're barefoot, you have greater variability of your foot strike pattern. So if you're on soft surfaces, you might land on your heel. And, and then, but when you're on hard surfaces, you don't want to, you've got to soften it. So you land on the ball of your foot. So they vary their foot strike depending on the surface with, you know, if they're harder, the surface, the more tendency of a forefoot strike. Whereas rear foot strikers, I'm sorry, those in who are, who are shot and basically are use a rear foot strike pattern, no matter what the surface is. And that's really important because the injuries that we talk about with runners are overload injuries, overuse, overload injuries, meaning that you're getting the same kind of load every single time. But if you're barefoot, you t or even in minimal shoes, you have some sensory input, you tend to change sort of the distribution of that load more. There's more variability of loading. Um, and so it doesn't, you don't have as, as much of an overload issue when you, um, you know, land just a little bit different every single time. It's why trail running, even shot, even if you're in shot shoes, trail running has is associated with less injuries than road running. And it's not because the road is hard. It's because the road is the, it's the same every single time. Whereas trail running, you know, you're running over branches and you're changing your foot strike and you're, you know, you're changing the way the, the leg gets loaded with every single foot strike. So, um, so that's kind of a little bit about the loading and, and foot strike patterns um, and, and how, they, how they result in different kinds of um, loading to the lower extremity. Yeah, I can also endorse, you know, I've been doing the minimalist footwear running now for about a year and a half. And I remember the first time I did it running outside on the concrete. I mean, there was no way. I was going to land on my heel, you know, and experience that type of pain. And so you're essentially forced, you know, to get on your tiptoes, shorten your stride, increase that cadence and almost have this different running pattern, this different gait pattern, right? Which I'm definitely interested in asking you about. Um, but some of the other things, you know, I realize is I'm a lot more in the present moment. And I believe most of yes. our mechanoreceptors in our, in our foot are also near our toes rather than the heel. So you're actually getting um, better proprioception, better control as you are running. Um, one of the things I was curious about though, is that are people who are in shod who, you know, might have a seven millimeter, eight millimeter drop in their shoe. Um, is it okay for them to use a four foot strike? Because with all this talk about minimalist footwear and having a four foot striking pattern, I'm hearing people who, you know, are not wearing minimalist shoes try to attempt that. And I'm wondering if that's advantageous still, or is that going to lead to actually more issues? Yeah, it's a really good question because I think a lot of people don't think about this. So um, in, my, in my journey, I'm at the University of Florida now, University of South Florida, but I was at Harvard University and up there I had uh, developed a running clinic that was associated with the lab. So it was a, it basically the, the lab helped to answer questions. The clinic could generate the questions, so they really went hand in hand. And we saw a 1,000 runners in that clinic. Um, and so we had many people that came to us that had transitioned themselves to forfeit strike because they're red-born to run. They've heard maybe it's better, but they ended up with injuries. Um, and there, I don't have a study. There's not been a study yet done. I, I've been trying. I have not been able to get I had one. I submitted one to NIH. NIH just doesn't. It's tough. That's a tough group. Um, it's tough to sell them on minimal shoes. Um, but 
and it was comparing sort of you know forfeit striking in regular shoes versus forfeit striking in minimal shoes versus you know all like all different combinations and how that affects both mechanics and injury that was that was what i really wanted to do i've not yet been able to get that funded but if you're going to run with a forfeit strike pattern it matters what footwear you use um, a lot of people have tried to um, go from uh, uh, go to a forfeit strike pattern in the same shoes. They don't want to go through the, it takes some time to adapt to minimal shoes because it's kind of like an exercise. It puts greater demand on the foot muscles and the, and the Achilles. And so a lot of people don't want to go to the minimal shoes and they don't want to lose the cushioning. So they think, oh, I'll just change my foot strike pattern. But the problem with it is that because you have this heel to toe drop, right? Um, it puts your foot into a plantar flex position. And then you want to plantar flex the whole, and your foot is flat on the ground, but you're, you're plantar flexed in the, in the shoe. And then you have to get, you know, your heel off the ground. So you're in greater plantar flexion, which puts a greater load on the Achilles. Mm. Um, and so what happens is you still have to get the foot plantar grade and you've got to go through greater range of motion and dorsiflexion in the same amount of time. And so it, you end up with greater dorsiflexion velocities um, which puts greater load on the Achilles tendon. So it puts it at risk for Achilles tendonitis. Uh, if you look at it from the front view, um, you land with more inversion because you have this flare. These shoes have flares on them. And so you land on the flare, um, which puts you further out. And everybody lands on the outside of their foot, but the flare actually causes you to land in more inversion. So then you've got, again, you have to go through greater range of motion in the same amount of time to get your foot flat by mid support. So you have greater eversion velocity and it's the posterior tib that helps to prevent that. It helps to control that. So it puts a load on the, on the posterior tib. You also can get a load on the perineals because if you land in a lot of inversion, now the perineals are acting eccentrically to hold you up, right? To prevent you from rolling over into inversion. So it puts these increased loads. You also have a greater, when you land in a pair of regular shoes as a forward striker, you have greater anterior posterior impacts and you have greater medial lateral impacts. And in fact, the overall impacts are highest if you forefoot strike in a pair of regular shoes. They're higher than rear foot striking in a pair of, of um, cushion shoes, regular shoes. So it's just not a good thing to do. And I always say, if you want a rear foot strike, that's fine. I'm not gonna try to change your mind. Wear a pair of shoes that have some cushioning because you're gonna land on your heel and you need it, right? Try to get shoes that don't have a lot of flare because the flare causes increased moment arms. They're levers, and they cause increased moment arms and cause increased loads on the on the foot. So try to use find a shoe that actually has very little flare and little heel to toe drop and some cushioning. If you want to run with a forefoot strike pattern, I suggest you run. I would prefer you running in a pair of minimal shoes. So you have maximal sensation, but at least run in a pair of shoes that have. Again, very little cushioning, very little flare, very little, if none, no heel to toe drop. Yeah, Dr. Davis, you know, you're mentioning a lot of these terms. I wonder if the audience is able to keep up a little bit, right? I mean, I know Altamash and I have kind of studied this, but do you mind just quickly basically going over the criteria of a barefoot shoe and maybe what, you know, motion control means, what cushioning actually means? Um, I even have my shoe here too have as a model in case anyone wants to go to YouTube and, uh, and watch it here. So in terms of what defines a minimal shoe, so a minimal shoe is one that has no midsole. So there's just an outer sole on this shoe 
to um, provide traction and you know protection from the ground. Um, it has no heel counter, so no stiffness in the heel counter, right? There's no arch support inside. They're they they're wide in the uh, across the ball of the foot, and you can roll them up in a ball. That is a minimal shoe, and I'm sure you can do it with your shoe. Yeah, you absolutely. Roll your shoe up. It makes for a great uh, travel shoe. Right. And there was there've been a couple of studies that have shown like that shoes that have just a little bit of cushioning, people still land on their heel. Hmm. Because as long as you have some cushioning there, you feel like you can land on your heel, but you might end up with greater impacts because you don't have enough cushioning. So I, I there's what I, I'm going to call them partial minimal shoes. They don't have as much cushioning or as much arch support. They kind of in between. And a lot of people want to do that sort of in between, but I don't think it really is beneficial to go that way. I think you either have cushioning under the heel so you protect yourself or you don't and you utilize your your own muscles. So that's that's a minimal shoe. In terms of do you want me to go through like eversion and dorsiflexion and Yeah, go for it. Okay. So um so when I was talking about how you land, plantar flexion is the, the angle of the foot when the toes are down and the heel is up, right? Um, and so when you land as a forefoot striker, you land on the body foot and then your ankle goes into flexion. That's called dorsiflexion. Um, inversion, eversion, you're landing on the outside of your foot and then the foot rolls in. It's often called pronation. That's another term for it. So some people may be more familiar with the term pronation or the rolling in of the foot. Um, and those things are exaggerated when you forefoot strike in a pair of regular shoes. Yeah, I, I love that you had talked about that it's more than just the sagittal plane, right? I, I think as, even as somebody who has been invested in this for over a decade, I think maybe the Vibrams came out, the first original Vibrams with like the five finger ones, right? To 2009, 2010, somewhere yeah. around that career. And I remember it was, and, and so I, you know, before medical school, I had a career as performance coaching, working with athletes. And so like, I was one of the first people to get that. And I remember training and, you know, uh, I'll, I'll talk a little bit later about how my the evolution of thought is kind of where we started off with that and, and how we bring it back and look at big picture. But, you know, I would always just think about this in the sagittal plane, right? Pro, like in terms of forefoot versus rear foot, midfoot strike. And you talking about that flare, which I've been fooled because when I look at it, I'm like, oh, great, that's a wide toe box. That's actually good for somebody. Who, like I see a lot of patients with maybe hallux limitus or hallux rigidus, which is really arthritis of the big big toe joint, right? MTP joint. And for them, I'll always recommend, Hey, you actually want some cushioning and maybe some, a wider base toe. Cause you don't want that to be tight in there, but that's maybe not the case, right? That flare is actually making it more difficult or your brain is lazy. And so you don't want to bring that foot up and you're actually robbing yourself because you're not activating that posterior tip like you're talking about. So that I, I love that. The other point I think with respect to people who have that excessive plantar flexion, and not only is it making it harder for you to, to go into that, um, you know, forefoot strike, but when they're wearing the shoe in just regular day life, right? Going from point A to point B, and they're not actually using it just for running purposes. And that becomes your everyday shoe. Now you've got resting plantar flexion all the time. And eventually, right, we see a lot of people who have this Achilles tendinopathy. Nowadays, I've been getting a lot of consults because people are freaking out about rupturing their Achilles because we have so many professional athletes doing it. And they have these tight and stiff Achilles tendon that doesn't have any elasticity. And so you get that 34-year-old who's rupturing or injuring there after they're trying to play basketball. Um, and so anyways, if you don't 
you know, preserve that elasticity and that stretch of that tendon, you will have quote unquote, a resting contracture, not a true contracture, but you know what I'm getting at. So that's another reason that, you know, you might be adding insult to injury, no pun intended there, but um, I'd like to shift now, Darshan, unless you have follow-ups about this, this running stuff to talk about kind of the, the daily loading and maybe some of the other places where it's not necessarily running. Right. So talking about the, the lifting athlete, the cross training, things of that nature, is how might that change the kinematics, right? Particularly as we look up the change. For instance, I'll get a lot of people, and I think for me, my primary thing is not running. It's it's going to be weightlifting, right? And, and so strength training. So if I'm doing, you know, barbell back squats, like how might that change the load? And I think maybe we could look at it as, you know, when we think about the most common overuse um, as we get an elderly population and we have people living longer, we think about knee osteoarthritis, right? And I think people will know, right, knee osteoarthritis, um, we've talked about this before, the middle part of the joint, right? So it's a tricompartmental joint and the medial part is going to wear out the fastest. And when we're looking at it, I alluded to this earlier, I'll tell my trainees, okay, look at that foot, right? If it's pronated, right, you're going to have that knee is going to have more of a valgus collapse, which means kind of like knock knee type situation, right? And therefore, that's going to wear out a little bit faster. Now, when you mentioned earlier, like, I'm not really sure any of it matters. I'm starting to think is like, how much of it is this us spending time in biomechanics and finding reasons to be able to teach people so we can give them questions to answer on a test versus how much of it actually matters in that clinical context when we take a big step and look at the big picture. So I know I, I gave you a lot there to handle, but uh, I know you're up for it. Yeah. So um, I'll take that question as how can how can minimal shoes be applied across a variety of different um, populations? Um, and again, I'm going to go back to uh, I, my, my research and the way I treat clinically is based on this. The closer we are to the way we're adapted to move, the less our risk for injury. The closer we are to the way we're adapted to move, the less the risk for injury. And so, you know, I think this applies across the whole population. I think the kids should be in minimal shoes, let their feet develop, and barefoot too, barefoot too. Um, but, you know, it's nice to protect your feet at times. I understand that. And I, I'm not like you have to be barefoot. But I think barefoot is awesome and people need to spend time barefoot. We're barefoot all the time. We never have shoes on in the house. Um, and I wear flip-flops all year round now because I'm at the University of South Florida, so it's great. Um, but, you know, kids need to, we need to get kids, they'll, they'll adapt, I think, a, a, a more efficient um, running pattern. I think that things will adapt naturally because they're, they're, they're allowing the, all the natural input that they're supposed to have. Um, in terms of sensory input, in terms of the mechanics, et cetera. Um, in terms of adults, even walking. So we conducted a study. This was in concert with uh, Sarah Ridge in, um, at BYU at the time. Um, and it was a study of, they were, these were collegiate-aged individuals. And they, um, we had three groups. One group walked in regular shoes. One group did a foot-strengthening program. And the other group just walked in minimal shoes. And we looked at the cross-sectional area of the muscles of the feet in all three, both at baseline and at 12 weeks. I think four, eight, and 12, I believe. Yeah. Um, and what we found is that people walk in the regular shoes, there's no change in it. And you wouldn't expect it. There was no impetus for change. The people in the foot strengthening group, their muscles got stronger. They got bigger. 
and a bigger muscle is a stronger muscle. Size relates to strength. The people in the walk who just simply walked in minimal shoes, their foot muscles also got stronger to the same degree, except for one muscle. Um, and so what that tells you is just simply walking in minimal shoes makes your feet stronger. And a strong foot is going to be a healthier foot. It's going to be less risk for things like plantar fasciitis because the plantar fascia is more protected because you have that first line of defense. Um, just strength all the way through the foot, right? So let's take it now. And now to answer your question about the other, other areas, um, weightlifting is a great one because how important is it to be able to feel the ground when you've got that kind of weight on you? I don't do that kind of heavy weightlifting. My husband does, and he does it in these kind of shoes, not, not pink ones, but um, he does it in, in minimal shoes. Um, and he feels he can feel the ground. He feels he has more better proprioception. Now, you don't want to take somebody who's been you know, lifting in like maybe supportive cushion shoes and put them in a pair of minimal shoes right away because they don't have the strength. You have to adapt. And this is honestly where minimal shoes got the bad rap. 10 years ago, well, whenever it came, 2009, 2010, people thought it's just a shoe, right? You just put it on, you do everything you were doing before. And the problem is, it's like going to the gym, as your example, lifting 100 pounds when you've never lifted before, getting injured, and having the community say, oh, weightlifting is bad for you. Don't do that. No one would do that. They'd say, don't do it that way. And I have spent the last decade trying to tell people, don't do it that way. So I think that, you know, it's in anything, it's really important for us to have as much sensory input and to have things that provide, that promote foot strength as much as possible. Now let's take it an, a, the next, to the next age group, right? There was, you, talk, you mentioned NEOA. One of my colleagues from uh, Brazil, Belseco, did an amazing study where she took women who were 50 plus who had documented NEOA and, um, and randomized them into walking in regular shoes versus um, Moleka shoes. If you look them up online, they're, they're basically $15 minimal shoes. They're like minimal shoes. They're very inexpensive, and a lot of people who don't have a lot of money down there actually walking them. But So she randomized them. So she's putting a, these people with documented knee away who are on pain medication and have knee pain in minimal shoes. It's kind of crazy, right? Um, and she followed them for six months. And she monitored their, um, their pain medication as well as their biomechanics and their function. And they had significant improvements in their WOMAC, significant reduction in their pain medication, and significant improvement in their knee mechanics. Because to your point, shoes tend to put you into more supination or rolling over. And that rolling over puts your knee into that varus position, which actually loads the medial compartment right? When you get into minimal shoes or even barefoot, your foot rolls in and it kind of distributes the, the more equally that load across the knee. This is, they did no exercises in this, in this intervention. It was simply minimal shoes. So I think that's amazing, right? And then this is an injured population. There have been studies now that are coming out looking at, at people who are aging and finding that because, you know, I, it makes me crazy when I see these people in these huge shoes, right? Support big, clunky, supportive shoes. They can't feel the ground. They have, they have large moment arms, large lever arms because they're, they're really flared. Um, and they don't have, it, it can affect their balance. And they showed that in minimal shoes, balance and stability is improved. So it's across the board 
minimalist shoes, I think, again, and it's just simple. This is not rocket science. This is just, let's, let's do what we do to every other part of our body. We don't support it sort of short of, I guess, bras and jock straps, but we, we basically just, we, our clothing is really just to kind of protect us and to, mm-hmm. to protect us from the sun and the wind and the rain. And of course we're all fashionistas, but but for some reason, we've gotten to this idea that shoes have to support our feet and our feet can't do it themselves. And we have to get away from that thought. I've told my grand, I have grandkids and I, I keep them in these kind of shoes. And uh, I, I tell my grandson, because there was a study that came out that showed kids ran faster in the minimal shoes. And I tell him that they're his fast shoes. These are your fast shoes. Um, so we just, you know, we got we to start putting little sparkly lights in them so little kids will love them. There needs to be some kind of campaign um, that gets us started because I believe that so much of the, many of the problems, this is getting off just the foot, that we are dealing with in middle to late life have to do with what we've done early on. And if we could change that, we could change all of this. We're putting a Band-Aid on the way. And I treat people too. I treat people with NeoA who already have the no total knees. And But if we could get it early on, that to me is the holy grail. Yeah. And that, that leads perfectly into what I'm about to ask you here. So, you know, I love to bucket this topic into lifestyle medicine. And, you know, with lifestyle medicine, we know that early exposure plus lifetime exposure really make a difference when it comes to health span, longevity, um, preventing injury. When we start to build awareness around barefoot shoes, you already mentioned trying to get it to our younger population. And rightfully so, I'm guessing that we're also telling it to people who come through the physical therapy clinics and to Altamash and I with pain. But where do we find the biggest bang for our buck? Is it truly just looking at, you know, parent teaching parents what type of shoes they need for their kids? And then the other question I'll ask is, is there ever a point of no return where for somebody they should absolutely not be touching barefoot shoes? Um, Well, I'll answer your last question first. And yes, you know, I've learned in my career, my life, never say never and never say always, Hmm. right? So not everyone should wear minimal shoes. And if you have the reason for using minimal shoes is because you you want more sensory input. But if you don't have sensory input, Mm -hmm. if if your sensory system is impaired, like in diabetes, peripheral neuropathies, and you can't feel when you've got too much pressure under your second metatarsal head, you should, you need cushioning, get a pair of cushioned orthotics. And, you know, if you've got rheumatoid arthritis and you've got deformities and you, when you load, it's a lot of pain, you need to accommodate that. There are going to be cases where people should wear something other than a minimal shoe. So yes. But the other thing I've learned is that I don't know what the right and left limits are of who can wear them. Because I had a woman, she was a PT and she was in her mid fifties and she'd been wearing orthotics her whole life. And she had an arch that honestly looked like this. It looked like Charcot-Marie tooth syndrome. And she'd actually been diagnosed that and undiagnosed it because she didn't have the sequela, other sequela of symptoms. She, as she's a PT, her husband's a physician, her, her daughters are all in medicine, PA, PT, nurse, um, nurse practitioner, I think. Um, and they all have kind of bought into the minimal shoe sort of idea. And they came to one of my, this was at ACSM, American College of Sports Medicine. They came to one of my lectures and she came up to me and she said, um, you know, I, I want to try this. And I said, but yeah, I'm looking at your feet. I don't know. She said, but nothing seems to help. 
So two years later, fast forward, I'm in Boston at the meeting, the ACSM meeting there, and she comes up to me and she is walking in a pair of five fingers. Her feet are kind of still, it's not changed her arch, but she's walking in five fingers. And, um, and I was just amazed. I said, I can't believe you did. She goes, I just started doing exercises for my feet and started slowly. And she said, my feet have never felt better. They're the only thing I'm comfortable in. She and her husband had just walked the Inca Trail, Montu Picchu, um, in those shoes, not in hiking boots, right? A lot of people are in hiking boots when they, when they walk that Inca Trail, right? No, no. She was in these minimal shoes, right? What, what a testimonial. And I would never have said you should wear those. Those, that was that high arch stiff foot that, right? So that's what I've learned. Um, we had an individual who um, had no toes. She'd had sepsis. Uh, and this was at the running clinic when I was at Harvard. Um, and she lost, they were amputated, right? And, and people had her in these big, heavy shoes. And she just wanted to um, run. She wanted to be able to um, uh, wear high heels at her daughter's wedding. Um, and so we worked on her feet. We worked on the strength of her feet. We had her walking in minimal shoes. We didn't have her run in the minimal shoes because she didn't have the toes with something kind of a low profile shoe for her. Um, but again, there, I mean, so I, I think it's worth trying with people, um, but you also have to be smart about it and you have to be clinically astute. You know, you don't want to, again, to do no harm, right? That's, that's our mantra. We don't want to harm anybody, but at the same time, I've given more feet a chance as I've gone on. So that was that question. Now I forget what the first question was. That's all right. I was just talking about what the biggest lever is that we could pull to really spread this campaign, this awareness. Yes. You mentioned, you know, the younger population. Um, but what about, you know, how do we have these discussions with colleagues? Because I have a lot of it with my co-residents, with my attending today. And he said, make sure you ask Dr. Davis, because I have really flat feet. So, you know, how do we how do we have these conversations? Yeah, I think um well, I think we have to have more and more people having the conversations. It's like anything else. It's like smoking and littering. Look what we've look how we've changed the world in smoking. I mean, I know there are still countries that do, but you know, we we had this campaign and even littering. Like you seldom see people throwing things out the window, right? There's, I, I think we just gotta have to have more and more and more people. That's why I'm really excited that you guys are really excited about it. Um, more people talking about it, but I think there are certain communities that we have to get into. And one of them, I think, is the pediatric community. So pediatricians and physicians who deal with children. Um, and then even in geriatrics, right? Because remember I just said, that, and I, what I, my, my ammunition is research. And I have a drawer of articles that I'll pull out and say, here's a study that shows that walking in minimal shoes increases foot strength, right? Here's a study that shows that elder, elderly people have better balance in minimal shoes. Here's a study that shows that people with NEOA actually did better with minimal shoes. So I think that research helps certainly to, to back it. But, you know, I, I've had people say to me, Irene, it's not the research that gets the whole general population excited. It's marketing. Like there's, that's why I'm wondering, like, do we need to have a big marketing campaign, right? And how do we do that um, to really market that these are cool, this let your feet, free your feet, you know, all of those kinds of things. Um, showing kids running barefoot and showing, you know, feet in all kinds of different positions and showing what feet can do. I mean, people should be able to do this with their feet and so many people can't. Right? 
I mean, you have the same, yes, exactly. You have the same muscles in your feet that you do in your hands. You have an abductor digiti minimi to be able to do this, and most people can't. So it's one of the things that we do in the clinic is we, we, we teach people how to do this. It takes a while, and having those toe spreaders helps because it gets the muscle in a better length tension to actually kind of act. That's why they, I, that's why I believe they help. It's really kind of, it's hard to start from here, but if you start from here and go out, it's a little bit easier. So doming and, and toe spreads and toe yoga and, and heel, heel, um, heel lifts and all of those kinds of things are, are, are obviously really important for that. Um, yeah. So I, I, you know, I, I've, I have really scratched my head. Um, I am going to be meeting with someone at the PT meeting uh, in, next week, and we're going to brainstorm about this because it, 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 it sometimes keeps me up at night thinking, how do I, you know, I really want people to, once people, once people experience it, they believe it, right? Yeah. They believe it. I've had so, few people, except for people who have done it too quick, too soon and gotten injured, but most people who go to minimal shoes will never put a pair of thick, heavy shoes on again because mm -hmm. they feel really yeah, I can't go back. weird and, and can't go back. Yeah. Right. I don't know. Do you guys have ideas? So I was actually about to ask you, what about therapy? Like our, our therapists, how much of the education are they getting about this? How much of the population is actually talking to the patients that come into these clinics? Because I'm thinking also about writing a script for physical therapy when I see patients say, you know, this patient would probably benefit highly from doing foot exercises, um, going barefoot actually in the gym and working on balance and sensation. And I'm always thinking about, well, how do I write this script out so that the therapist actually knows um, and it's comfortable with it? So from your experience, what have you seen? So um, we wrote a paper, a foot core, it's called the foot core paradigm, I think. Um, and I can send that to you after the this, after we get done. Um, Pat McKeon is the first author, but we were sitting around a campfire um, at the International Foot and Ankle S Symposium in in Kentucky, um, and we were we were someone was playing. I think there was a little bourbon involved, but we were all sitting around, and we, and I was lamenting that my profession doesn't appreciate how important the muscles of the foot and the foot are because they just published a guidelines. It's basically um, you know, guidelines for how you treat plantar fasciitis. And it included a lot of really good things, but strengthening was very obviously missing from it. It was like, there's no muscles in the foot, but every other clinical guideline they have, you know, uh, biceps tendonitis and, and patellar tendonitis, all those involve strengthening, but the foot didn't. And so we wrote a paper and it was myself and two other uh, individuals who were um, athletic trainers. And we also asked Dennis Bramble, who is a evolutionary biologist, to join us in this paper. And we wrote a paper to introduce the idea of foot core, just like everyone sort of bought into. And it's a concept. It's really a concept. Even the lumbopelvic core, it's a concept. That we have these small muscles in that area that when they contract, there's, they don't generate large force, but they stabilize so the prime movers can do their job. Same exact thing in the foot. These, these muscles, these intrinsic muscles are small, small cross-sectional areas, small moment arms. They don't generate a lot of force, but they're very important for stabilization. And we talked about that. And, you know, that paper got downloaded a, a, a ton. And it really, I think, started a new, and, and I'm not sure I'm not the first person that thought this. I'm sure other people were thinking about it, but it, it, it started this sort of wave of, yeah, we need to pay attention to it. 
And now you see foot core being taught in schools. I know we teach it, and of course I'm going to teach it in our program, but um, I see it in other programs. Um, and and I think it's and I have actually had patients who reach out to me and they'll tell me that their therapist did these exercises. So one of the first things I'll ask them. So it makes my heart sing to know that people really are doing this now. But you do still need to find the right therapist, right? So um, it, it's all about relationships. Like I, people say to me, like, how do you get the physicians to buy into the runners and minimal shoes? I said I develop a relationship with them and they trust me. And I, I provide them the research. We have conversations, right? It's it's more, it's not just I'm going to refer. It's like, I need a relationship with this person. And I think having those relationships and knowing the people in your community, the PTs that actually do understand the importance of foot core um, and finding those people. And then they become sort of a good conduit for, to you for those kinds of patients. Um so that's, I think it's important, but I do think more and more, the whole concept of foot core now, I think that paper came out in 2016, I believe. Um, and so it's been a number of years now, and I think it's really kind of caught on. So I don't think it's going to be something that's, you know, new. Yeah, no, I love that. I think, you know, the lumbopelvic core is much more popular in both, um, you know, all disciplines of healthcare, particularly because the back pain is probably much more prevalent in terms of something, right? People talk about nonspecific back pain or every single person throughout their lifetime at some point has had a back issue, right? And so we tried, okay, let's try to strengthen and stabilize everything around it to take some of the stress off the structures that might be contributing discomfort. But, you know, as my boss always likes to talk about, he's a runner too, but he, he will tell his patients all the time, listen, like everything starts with your feet up. Right. And in fact, when he, so we do a lot of manipulation, osteopathic manipulation, you know, different types of treatments. And he'll always start with the feet looking up and he'll say, look, that's your first interaction with the world. Right. So if things aren't processing correctly there, everything up the chain might not be moving the way it's supposed to be. And that's going to maybe put undue stress in places that's not supposed to. Everything that we've talked about in this first hour. So I, I do think that's really, really important. You know, shifting to kind of for folks who are later in life, right? So maybe somebody's listening, maybe a 35-year-old runner who is really not quite ready to, to hang it up and intends on playing sports or running or really any athlete for the next 10, 20, 30 years, they're sold now, right? Dr. Davis, they say, okay, listen, I got to really take this um, this this foot thing seriously and, and you know, utilize these muscles and train them just as seriously as we train our lumbopelvic core and our other muscles, I'm wondering how might one start? And then the other thing, the second part of that question would be for the general population, for the weekend warriors, right? For the busy professional, right? Such as the three of us, maybe we do understand that there is a return on investment, right? So we talk about your researchers, so you're, you're, you're teaching, you're, you're publishing papers and stuff, and there is a finite amount of time that we can spend training, right? So You've talked to Peter Tia before, right? He's a big proponent of zone two cardio, right? How many hours a week do we spend on that? How many hours do we spend in a week uh, doing strength training? And then recognizing that if we're going to spend 10, 20, 30, 40 minutes, the dose to get that foot core stabilized and firing properly, I'm curious how you think about that and how might you, when you look at a weekly program or a monthly program for an athlete, how much time would you spend on addressing the foot core specifically? Um, maybe not necessarily in the rehab phase, because we understand that you have to you know, give it some more energy, but maybe more from a prehab preventative standpoint. In terms of 
um, trying to prepare like for, and, and it, it, when you first started talking about this, I, I was thinking about like, you know, how do you prepare somebody to go to like running and walking in minimal shoes? And, and how do you, how do you get them to train this area of the body so that it can do its job? Um, and I guess it depends on kind of the job you're going to ask it to do, right? So if you're just walking, you can, and if, and if you don't have any foot related problems like plantar fasciitis, and you haven't been in orthotics. So those are a lot of ifs. So you got a pretty relatively healthy person, regardless of their age, honestly. Not somebody we see in our clinic, right? <laughs> I know, I know. But they can walk in minimal shoes without much preparation because the demand is not that great. Now, you don't want them going out and walking five miles, right? Because that can cause a problem um, right away, just like anything else. But they could start out, you know, you know, wearing them around the house and then going out and doing some walks. And, and you, 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 the, the risk is very low when somebody is just walking. You've got 1.2 times your body weight, maybe up to 1.5 if you're brisk walking. It's running. Running, it's two and a half times your body weight, and you've got only one foot on the ground coming down with that. It's a series of single leg landings. So you have to prepare, right? The way that I prepare my runners is I start them walking because I know for a fact now, based on our research, that they're going to get stronger just from walking. So they'll at least get a base strength from walking in the minimal shoes, right? And then if I want them to run, then we're going to do um, some progressive foot core a progressive foot core program. Um, and this is going to involve things like the, there are some really basic exercises. And I'm not sure if this is what you're getting at, but things like doming, short foot exercise, where you press your toes down, but you keep them straight as much as you can. And you pull the ball of your foot back towards your heel and you hold it. And then it's called don't, it's short foot exercise because your foot actually gets a little shorter, your arch raises and you hold it. Right. And you start out by doing that you can do it sitting if you're not very strong. And if you get cramping, it means you're really weak. So then you usually they do get cramping. And then you do it in standing, right? And then you do it when you're standing in line for the grocery store. You just you just do incorporate it into your daily activities, just like active standing, which we really didn't talk much about, but it's part of active standing, right? And then you start to increase the load like you would in your when you do weightlifting. You basically have them start doing single leg hops or double hops. So doming and hopping. And then doming and hopping on one foot, right? And then doming and hopping off of a bench on two feet. Then doming and hopping off a bench on one foot. And then leaping from foot to foot to foot to foot. Those kinds of things. And you can add weight. So you can progressively increase that load um, so that they're able to keep those muscles strong. Um, and and once, they, once you start to activate them, and I don't have research to show this, but I, my... my assumption is that once you get those muscles acting, they're going to start to be more active in all kinds of activities that you engage the ankle and foot and the prime movers in. They're going to help to stabilize so that once you start to do those higher level activities, you'll have that base of support. And then in terms of just, I just do want to say one thing in terms, because people ask a lot about how you would transition into running if you're healthy, like you just want it, you want to try to do this. What I tell people is, you know, Make sure you can walk in a pair of minimal shoes for 30 minutes briskly, a 30-minute brisk walk in minimal shoes. Once you can do that and you're not having any problems, then you slowly replace your walking with running, right? So and you take, take it into three 10-minute blocks. You do uh, run for one minute and walk for nine, run one, walk nine, run one, walk nine, and slowly replace the walking with the running so that now you're running 
30 minutes in the minimal shoes. And you don't do it all at once. You do, you know, take a day off in between. And if you have any pain, you back off one, you know, and stay at that same level, give yourself a rest, but slowly bring it up. And then once you're running 30 minutes, then you can start to increase your speed and you can start to increase your distance and your, and, and some of the hill work and things that you want to do. But it needs, you need to give your body time to adjust. It's not just a shoe. Yeah, the uh, audience can take it from me. I transitioned way too quickly um, just into running. And I mean, that's my personality when it comes to sports and running and whatever fitness. I'm oh, yeah, like, many people did. I'm just going to do it. And I, my left Achilles, you know, there's a lot of strain there, uh, even now walking uphill. So I definitely transitioned way too quickly to now where I run three miles, you know, I'm getting some claudication symptoms. So yeah, don't do that. Take it easy. And uh, <laughs> you'll, you'll, you'll fare much better. So I'm trying to rehab that a little bit start low, go slow, right? Darsh, remember that? There you uh, go. Start low, go slow. I love that. Um, so thank you for, for those tactical tips. I think that's really, really important, right? I think oftentimes we'll see somebody and again, you know, it's inter interesting that you were asking the question is how do we get more people to buy in? And I, you know, it just goes to, to, to show one that, you know, when you live in little silo or you have your own biases, cause I thought living in that world that I talked about, we're seeing a lot of these athletes who, were kind of um, invested in their own performance and folks who were rehab minded and then going into physiatry and then going into sports medicine. This is majority of what I would see. The people who walk into my office are not healthy. They're not looking to optimize performance. They are injured and they will tell me this story, right? Oh, I heard this podcast, Medicine Redefined. Dr. Davis talked about this and I started doing this and now my foot hurts, right? And I'm like, oh God. Right. And so for, and so in my mind, I was like, okay, man, this pendulum has swung too far about this barefoot craze yet you're out there in the world. You're at these national Academy meetings, you're having these conversations and it seems to not be the case. Right. So, um, I really, truly appreciate that. And, uh, you know, I'm excited of maybe giving it another try. I will, I'll tell you like, you know, for me personally, you know, I've started developing some early osteoarthritis in my big toe. And so for me, it's been a challenge. And so I have to like put a, like a dancer's pad in there and maybe, include a foot that has a little bit of rocker. But now I'm starting to think, I'm like, well, if somebody came in with knee osteoarthritis, I wouldn't necessarily put them in a brace. I would say, let's, and this is a spiel I give everybody. I'm like, we have to strengthen the surrounding structures to distribute the load off the joint. Well, maybe it's not that much different when we're talking about the big toe joint, right? Do you agree with that? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Um, I've had people who have had things like that that you would think maybe putting them in a minimal shoe would be what make it worse and it's made it better. And that's very anecdotal. But um, I think that what happens when you're in a minimal shoe, especially if you get, get a nice wide one, and you know, it, like you said, I think the Vivos are really nice and wide. The, um, I think the Zeros also give you that width. And even going barefoot, honestly, what happens is you land, and I wish I could show you this video. It's, it's Chris McDougal running in slow motion from a front view. And you can see how you go across and the foot splays and the distribution of the load goes across all the metatarsals. When you land, even if you're on the ball of your foot in a pair of shoes that are stiff, it's this, this. But it's, it's, mm. I can't make my foot do it, but you're going through every single right. metatarsal. So you distribute the load in a different way. And it may be that it doesn't load your, you know, I, I would try it. Why not? Yeah. Um, but I would go slow and see if you can, you know, tolerate it slowly. And if it, if it makes it worse, of course, stop. Of course. The other one, you because you brought it up twice, right? Plantar fasciitis seems to be very, very challenging. And, you know, people will my come My favorite to thing to treat. Is that right? And so yes. maybe we could use a case study, right? So let's actually, I was talking about my boss earlier, you know, 
um, he's had some of these experiences. So hopefully he doesn't mind me sharing at this point. And, uh, you know, and he is, like I said, he's a runner. And uh, of course, like any old runner, uh, he, he asked me to take a look at it. And then, then yeah, I was like, yeah, you probably want to lay off this a little bit. I maybe see a little interstitial tear. And then he ran, you know, a 10K the next day. Um, so that just goes to show you how runners are. He's a runner, um, yeah. Yeah. But, uh, but I find that to be very, very challenging, particularly because they'll maybe go to some clinicians and they'll get a couple of corticosteroid inj- injections and they'll come to you and we're going to be very, very limited. Sure, that helps with pain, but, you know, I've heard many stories, again, um, a little bit of bias about you have plantar fascia rupture, Achilles tendon rupture, that kind of stuff, where you don't necessarily want to keep juicing it up with steroid and to help with the pain. You might want to address some of the surrounding structures. You mentioned plantar fascia and then you have four layers of muscles just on the bottom of the foot. Would you care to talk about a runner who maybe has an acute or chronic plantar foot pain, uh, let's call him to be 32 years old and training for a marathon, right? Three months out and is now starting to have like achy bottom of the foot pain and all their classic history. How might you approach that? Um, and this is a person who is not in barefoot training, right? They're doing their Brooks at this point. Yeah. And I've actually got an exact, a really good case. So okay. we had an individual who was probably 27 at the time, a guy who had um, had knee pain originally a while back and was given orthotics, right, for his knee pain, but they, they didn't really help. Um, so he kind of threw them away, but then he started doing a lot of walking. And I think, you know, my, my interpretation of that is that he wore the orthotics. Orthotics will make muscles weaker. Um, and there's a study that shows that 12 weeks of orthotic use results in a 10 to 17% reduction in the size of the muscles, right? So, so I'm, I'm assuming that, you know, he, the, you know, he wore them for a while, then he threw them away, but he was doing a lot of walking. He developed this plantar fasciitis and it started in this just terrible cycle. Like, I think he went to England, he went to England and he did a ton, he was walking all over the city and he went through, and I won't go through his whole history, but he had had steroid injections. He had had surgeries. He had had, um, um, shockwave therapy. He had had, I mean, everything that you can, orthotic shoes, everything you can imagine and nothing made it better. And his feet were a little bit on the low side in terms of the arches. They weren't completely flat. He could not stand to wait for a bus, like in the city, like he was in Boston. I think he was a, a doctoral student or post, maybe postdoc. Um, he couldn't wait for a bus and he couldn't take care of his two-year-old daughter because he couldn't run after her. So he was disabled at the age of 27 because of the foot pain. It was so severe. He came to us and he said, I want to run. And I said, well, let's start with walking, right? So what we did, and we did this over the course of probably a year and maybe 15 months, I think total, where he came in and our first goal was to have him walk. And so we started to, we, he didn't have orthotics because he'd thrown them away, but we started working on strengthening his foot and we strengthened his foot. We got him into minimal shoes, but had him just wear them very slowly, slowly graduated into him. We were working on all kinds of things. Like really, I believe in working in everything all the way down, at least from the core down, the lumbar pelvic core down. So he was really working on a lot of things, but focusing on the foot. We got him to the point where he was able to walk in the minimal shoes. And we sent him on his way for a while because we wanted him to just kind of get used to that. And then he, he got a job overseas in Europe and he, before he left, he wanted to be able to run. So, um, he was having a little bit of, every time he tried to run, he was having a little bit of knee pain. So we did some retraining and I won't get into the gait retraining stuff that we do, but we were trying to realign his knee through gait retraining. Um, but we also worked on 
you know, further develop, like increasing the load on the foot muscles. So increasing the demand, adding weights, those kinds of things. And in the end, he was able to run in minimal shoes. He was running on the ball of his foot in minimal shoes. Um, this is a guy who had had probably five years of plantar fasciitis with all every single treatment you can imagine, and including surgery, and nothing got him better. And all it was really was strengthening the muscles and, and fortifying the foot and fortifying above. Because remember, your glutes help. I mean, the gluteal muscles are important for unloading the foot as well. You know, they, they take a load as well. So he wasn't using his gluteals. It was more complicated than just his foot. But that's an example. I think plantar fasciitis in general, now there are other causes of plantar fasciitis, but most of the time it's associated with weak feet. And if you strengthen the feet, then you don't put the load on the plantar fascia. It's your first line of defense, those muscles. It's one of my favorite things to treat because it's, it's, I don't think it's hard. It can take some time and patience for sure, but I don't think it's hard. It's fascinating, right? Because I think, I mean, Altamash, you can speak to this, but I know in clinic, it's one of the worst things to treat for us. Cause I mean, we're not really thinking about the barefoot shoes, right? We're thinking about rolling a ball or doing a steroid shot or, you know, whatever it might be. Um, so it's definitely something difficult that most people think. And when they think plantar fasciitis, they say, what am I going to do here? But yeah, I mean, giving it a try at least with, with barefoot shoes. Um, well, Dr. Davis, I know the research is still pretty young, right. In, in terms of what we know, um, about barefoot shoes versus shod. And this is not to say to the audience that barefoot shoes are a cure-all, right? I mean, we know that there are certain injuries that par uh, primarily happen with barefoot shoes, such as the metatarsal stress fractures, the Achilles, and things like that. But what is the current state of research around barefoot shoes? As in, what are we currently trying to solve for? And what else do we really need to look at? Good question. So um, one of the things that we know is that barefoot shoes strengthen the arch muscles. Every single study that's been done has shown them to increase either the size or the strength if they're using dynamometers or cross-sectional areas or volumes of the foot muscles, especially the plantar intrinsic muscles. So we know that. The state of the art is we know minimal shoes strengthen your feet. What we don't know is what's the effect on bone. And that's my next question is I want to look at people who have been in minimal, to start out with, cross-sectional study, looking at individuals who have been in minimal shoes versus those who are habituated to traditional shoes and look not only at their foot muscles, but also the strength of the bone. Because I believe if you have stronger muscles and they're pulling on the bone, there's the whole Wolf's Law, right? That those bones are probably going to be stronger as well. Um, and so I think for me, that's one of the next questions that I have. And then, you know, what is the effect of this it's, it's, as I mentioned, um, I, I think I mentioned earlier that it's really hard to get NIH to fund this kind of work. Um, there's, it tends to be conservative and minimal shoes are, there's always, you know, uh, reviewers that, that feel it's too risky, but it'd be really interesting to know whether those people who are in, even if you st uh, do a prospective study where you take a group of people, keep one group in the regular shoes and one group in minimal shoes and follow them for some period of time to see whether injuries, because we don't have, I think, a really good handle yet. I mean, I've seen it clinically, but I don't think we have good research that shows that minimal shoes result in lower um, injuries. There was a study that came out from the same Brazilian group that I mentioned before, Balseco's group, where they did foot core exercises. It wasn't minimal shoes, but foot core exercises, and they had a significant reduction 
in injuries. These were runners and those who did the foot core program. So if you think these shoes actually help to strengthen the feet and that study, you know, sort of A equals B, B equals C, then A equals C, sort of indirect, but we still need more. We need more research for sure. But I don't know that it's going to be the research. I'm a scientist and I want the research. It's my, it's my metric. It's, 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 you know, how I feel like I can make those arguments in a, in a, in a very, solid and valid way, but I'm not sure more research is what's going to do it in terms of going back to the original question you asked about how do we get this out there? I'm not so sure it's research. I think it's more marketing. I agree with that. I think, I think when we're talking about, you know, changing our practice, right. And we talk about this word evidence-based medicine, evidence-based practice or phrase, right. Um, I think in, in teaching in medical schools and things of that nature, although we can go down different rabbit holes of what really dictates medical education and, you know, PT education, and all that stuff. But um, I think with respect to that, more research will be better. Because, and it, particularly with hard outcomes like injury, right? I was earlier on Instagram today and, you know, there's this famous, um, I think, chiropractor, but he's very, um, you know, context driven in terms of like, we all phosphorylate over, you know, take doing uh, the big three by Stu McGill, right? I mean, everybody who's listened to Peter Atia and we've talked about Stu McGill multiple times about his big three and how the importance of core stability and, and how that can help with back pain and stuff. And then, you know, there's this whole field of pain science and it's like, oh, well, maybe that doesn't really matter. You know, I'll give you a personal anecdote. I shared this recently as I can't, I had a, a medical student come in um, a second year and right now he's in his dedicated board prep time. And so he's studying 14 hours a day, hunched up in front of a computer with maybe, I don't know, four breaks. And so he's coming in with some upper back pain and neck pain. And so, you know, my trainees went, they saw him, they presented the case, they came back, they were like, I'm like, well, what do you think is going on? It's like, oh, well, you know, he's got some posture issues, he's got some tightness, and maybe he's got some arthritis. And I was like, he's 24 years old. I don't think he has arthritis in the neck. But, you know, great, give me your differential, keep going. Um, and so we're talking about all these things, and then we go and we talk about it. And, you know, mind you, he had seen somebody before, and they had given some chin tucks and all these postural correction exercises to say, called it myofascial pain. And ultimately what it came down to, and it was a teaching point for him and, you know, for even a humbling point for myself. And I was like, listen, man, we can sit here and we can talk about postural correction exercises all day. But if you're spending 14 hours studying hunched over in front of a computer, you know, three rounds of five minutes of postural correction is not going to fix that problem. Unfortunately, this is a tough time in life. The next six months, you got to get your boards and you got to do well. And this time just sucks. And we just got to embrace the suck for a little bit. And so I share that it's a talk about it, you know, like we need like important clinical outcomes and specifically with respect to not just like how that changes forces that we've talked about, which has been shown, but does that prevent injury? And especially like if somebody's going to go and invest money into that and time into that with the training that we're talking about, if you're going to be spending, I don't know, 45 minutes a week and you don't have that to train to do this stuff, like we want to see if it, is it really going to matter? And so um, I'm excited about that. That being said, though, I think the marketing in terms of having these conversations more and more, that's critical, particularly in today's day and age where like social media and marketing is intertwined into medical education, getting the word out seems to be the best way to get the conversation going. So um, we want to thank you for that. Um, thank you for coming here and educating us. And, uh, you know, I'm super excited to continue following. I, I hope our paths cross uh, sometime in the near future. I know Darsh is going to be down in Tampa in your neck of the woods, and I'm actually going to be in Orlando in two weeks at the AAP conference. I, I wish I could come out to Tampa and visit your lab. That would be awesome. But maybe somewhere. You're in the always future. welcome. I, I would love to. I would love to take you up on that. Um, where can, uh, you know, where can people follow more of your work, you know, aside from searching you in PubMed and stuff? I know that at one point 
you were doing consultations when you were up in, at Spalding. Is that something you're still offering down in Tampa where people can go yes, out and, and I'm do that? hoping to. Uh, we, we have not got the clinic up and running. So I, I, I mentioned that we had the Spalding National Running Center. I founded that at Harvard. Um, and we did see about a thousand patients through that clinic. Um, and I hope to, to develop, just to, to open an, a clinic. We're just trying to get through some of the logistics of it, but, um, hopefully soon I'll be seeing patients because I really miss it. It's been a couple of years now because I've been down there for two years and, um, I have never stopped say, seeing patients. Uh, it's, it's really what's made my research relevant and important. And um, it's so rewarding. I mean, research is, you really have to be patient. It's delayed gratification. But when you work with patients, it can be such more, much more immediate gratification. I just, I really enjoy um, trying to solve problem solve and help them work through the issues. So yes, hopefully soon. And you can follow me on Twitter. It's Irene S. Davis on Twitter. Um, that's the only social media I have. I have Facebook, but it's really family. Awesome. We're going to be sure to link all that. Um, what reminds me, I wanted to ask you the follow-up about uh, your research interest and where you think that it's going with respect to the stresses applied to the bone. Were you, just to clarify for me, is that you were thinking more of an effect in terms of how it's going to help bone remodeling locally, or do you think that transmates up the chain and we're talking about just bone density overall? Um, well, I haven't thought really up the chain because I think we need to understand them at the metatarsal level because that is the area where people get injured. And I think mm. it's because they don't have the strength of the muscles to support the metatarsals and the metatarsals get loaded. But I think that, you know, by strengthening those muscles, the muscles themselves strengthening and, and, and ten putting tension on the bone may help to strengthen the bone as well. So I think that's what I'm thinking. I was thinking more from the metatarsal Local. level at this point. Are the metatarsals the most common site for like running stress fractures and, or is it tibia? Tibia, tibia okay. and then, and then metatarsals. And then metatarsals. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Tibia and then metatarsals. And uh, I just, I want to say, you know, we've talked around and about uh, a little bit about lifestyle medicine. I, I just want to put a shout out for the American College of Sports Medicine, of which I am president. Um, it is an amazing organization and they are all about um, you know, how do we keep people moving better all through their life? Um, I have a, I have point, appointed a presidential task force on youth fitness, um, and I'm hoping that they're going to come up with recommendations. I would love to see the year of the fit kid, um, or something like that, um, or have youth fitness month. Um, because again, I think this goes back to that, but, um, at, there are a lot of people at, at ACSM that are, are you know, move it really doing a lot of good work in this area. Awesome. Well, Dr. Davis, I want to thank you as well. Like I said, in the beginning, it felt like Halloween and my pillowcase is filled with treats now. And I know there's so much more we could have, you know, gone down as far as gait patterns and, you know, kinetic chain, all that. And we'll definitely link everything you mentioned in the show notes as, 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 uh, as well as other resources that I can find to really illustrate what we talked about. I know sometimes it can conceptually be tough, but thank you so much for getting the shoe and, and really showing our audience. So definitely head to YouTube if you're listening, uh, if you really want to understand the mechanics that we're talking about. Um, and with that, the last question that we ask is, how do we add the health back to healthcare? So I think um, the most important thing is that we move and that we move throughout our life and that we keep moving. We can't stop moving. We need to incorporate movement and, and, and good movement 
um, throughout our day and throughout our life. And I think that prevention is the other aspect of this. I think we are trying to treat things and put Band-Aids on, on, on issues. And if we could be better at prevention, some of that is just movement, but even just keeping taps on people. You know, you, you go to your dentist for your checkup. I think that, that I always say physical therapists should, should see their patients every six months for a musculoskeletal checkup. Um, and I think that would help, again, prevention to keep the health in healthcare. Awesome. Well, Dr. Davis, thank you again. This was an amazing primer. And I know you're graciously accepted to do a part two here, so we can definitely go into more specifics for things. Um, so thank you. You're welcome. And thank you for the invitation. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for tuning into another episode. If this conversation vibed with you, please go ahead and leave a rating and review and share it with your loved ones and your friends. Spreading the word helps get this episode into the hands of others who may benefit from it. I want to thank our team, Haritha Yepuri for social media, Ethan Ju for video, Zainab Lugmani for research, and Sarah Khan for our upcoming newsletter. And as our disclaimer always goes, everything in this podcast is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute the practice of medicine, and we are not providing medical advice. No physician-patient relationship is formed, and anything discussed in this podcast does not represent the views of our employers. We recommend that you seek the guidance of your personal physician regarding any specific health-related issues. We'll see you next week.